invited some community churches to come and be a part of a celebration they were having, an event that they were doing. And a number of churches were responding to that. Two of the ones that obviously we know are around the area, but one was specifically Justin and a team from here. On Thursday night, we came back from Africa after flying all night. I called my parents to let them know I was here okay. And my dad says, okay, seriously, I met that music guy that you guys have at your church. That man is amazing. He can play anybody I've ever heard under the piano. He went on for another five minutes about Justin. I said, Dad, we made it back safe. Thank you for asking how our trip was. Hey, a lot of information in your bulletin. I want to make sure you read it carefully so you don't miss anything. A couple things I want to point out. Family experience, the first Sunday of the month, right after this service for all of those in uh, kindergarten to fourth grade, back in the old sanctuary. Find yourself in that direction going through the children's land and they'll be able to help you and find it. It's all for parents. Parents have to attend so they get an opportunity to know what event or what subject they're going to be talking about. This month it's humility. And I encourage you to go. A lot of people have been practicing hard for that particular event. This Saturday, Truth Project Training. A lot of you may have gotten a phone tree about... Did a phone tree go out yesterday, by the way? Okay, thank you for pointing that out. Because I didn't get it. I thought maybe I was still in another land somewhere. But uh, this Saturday, on Truth Project Training, Saturday morning, I think all morning for four hours, 8.30 to 12.30. But it's here at our church. Focus on the family and family life, or Family Institute of PA is doing the training but uh, Truth Project is amazing. And uh, if you want to be trained to be a trainer or a leader of that, <coughs> obviously you get a reduced rate for the materials. well. It's this Saturday here at our church. Uh, Alliance Women coming up. I know Ruth and Mike Davis in this flyer, and they are absolutely awesome. Tonight, uh, Ted's doing speaking on sanctification. Been a series on the power of the Holy Spirit on Sunday night here at 6 o'clock. Tonight is sanctification. Absolutely critical to our understanding of all that God wants for us in our journey with Him. Also do a membership class tonight. Anything and everything you've ever wanted to know about Community Alliance and then some. Three weeks only tonight and the next two Sunday nights. 6 to 7.30 in the Legacy Room over here outside to my right. You've got to have the book for tonight. If you've not signed up yet, you still can tonight. But you need the book and I've got some here. So uh, see me after the service and we'll make sure you get one of those. A lot of other information in your bulletin. Make sure you read it carefully so you don't miss out on a thing. If you prayed for our trip specifically, and if you did, I don't assume everyone did, but if you did, I don't know how I could ever thank you. It really went amazingly well. In the Christian Missionary Alliance, our missionaries gather once a year, sometimes twice, but normally once a year for training, encouragement, pastoral care, just to be able to get together and find out what God's doing in that particular area. In many contexts, Alliance pastors from churches across the nation are invited to be a part of that. In our context, we've been asked to pastor them. Over the last 12 and a half, 13 years, we've been a part of the Ivory Coast team for three trips and now the Senegal team for the last three times. And every other year we go and we speak to those missionaries. They gather together as encouragement, praise, praying together, talking about what each other is going on in their ministry. Some of them don't get a chance to see each other because they're so far apart. And this is an opportunity for them to experience love and grace and encouragement, sing together, to worship together, especially in English, and then to be able to have someone preach to them. We went over there to, uh, in the last couple of weeks, a week and a half ago, to Senegal, West Africa. I'm going to show some slides this morning as you go through here real quickly. Senegal, West Africa is the most western part. It's right on the bulge of Africa, the closest of any place to the United States because of where it's located on the, bat, on the bulge. It is a typical third world country, an enormous amount of poverty, 
Things we talked about this morning out of James chapter 5, the first six verses, when James talks about incredible wealth and unbelievable poverty and how those who are incredibly wealthy take advantage of those in poverty is exactly what's happening all over northern Africa. We landed in that particular area to find ourselves in a place where there was extreme poverty and a lot of unrest. They do find themselves having a couple of modern stores. One thing I found intriguing was, no matter where you go, Heinz Ketchup is there. <laughs> we came into the Pittsburgh airport. If you've ever been there, you see that huge Heinz Ketchup bottle and, you know, the home of Heinz Ketchup and wherever you go, we are there. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me. They are actually there in Senegal as well. Also having cereal, but just so you know, it's $7 a box there. We went to a resort that they have the last couple of experiences we did right on the ocean with incredibly interesting accommodations and even more interesting neighbors. <laughs> kind of had the opportunity to minister to their children. They gathered from uh, five or seven different areas and she was able to minister to the 14 children in a real large spread of a variety of ages and had a lot of things for them to do, an enormous amount of excitement for them to be a part of that. And they, as parents, deeply appreciated it. Many of them don't have Sunday school where they're at. Many of them don't have youth programs where they are. They're in such isolated and remote areas, especially in some contexts, that the kids never get together with any other kids. And it's a wonderful opportunity for them to be ministered to. Literally two out of our four suitcases were nothing but a rolling VBS. And the kids just delighted, and the parents even delighted in more. And then I had the opportunity to speak to missionaries from really three different nations. It was extremely unusual. Senegal was the location of where this conference was at. We have teams from the Dakar Academy, from the regional office, church planning teams, as well as those who are involved in ministry there, specifically in Senegal. But Ivory Coast, if you've kept up with BBC, which is probably the best resource for you to find out what's going on around the globe, Ivory Coast, which is where we started our ministry, is in, again, another civil war incredible unrest and unbelievable difficulty. All of those who have been there for the last couple of years after we were evacuated once in 2006, three couples have gone back. They all got out literally before the airport was closed two days before this conference began, and they were there. Many of them don't know where they're going next. They don't know if they can return to the Ivory Coast. The leader that was elected out still won't step down, and uh, they're not sure where they're going to go next. And so they would really appreciate your prayers. We have invested, many churches around the Alliance have invested in the West African Seminary, which brings in people from, I think, 14 different African nations to be trained there. And uh, they don't know if they can get back into that seminary. That's where they live, that's where their home is, that's where their heart is. But they're not sure if they can get back. We also had the opportunity to minister to missionaries from Tunisia. Tunisia is one of those countries that you'll hear about in a couple of months as we talk about where we are going in the Christian and Missionary Alliance to push back the darkness. Some countries in the CNMA that we've been ministering to for a long time have been saturated with the gospel. Others are extremely in very dark places and in dark environments. Uh, this particular country, Senegal, is 97% Muslim. And so they just really would appreciate and covet your prayers. They are in incredibly difficult and tense days all over northern Africa and in the Middle East as I shared with you a couple of weeks ago. And uh, they would really covet your prayers. And we appreciate your prayers for us and your prayers for our ministry. This morning I want to talk to you about money. It's everybody's favorite subject, isn't it? If I had a chance to ask you, what are some of your favorite subjects, I've got to believe that money wouldn't somehow surface to the top. I love it when churches talk about money. 
There are a lot of other things that you wish we would talk about, but that's not one. It's an incredibly important subject. You want to know where to invest? Invest in the Great Commission Fund. One of the things you'll notice on your offering envelope on a regular basis is a number of categories. One of them is the Great Commission Fund. And that is really what solely supports our missionaries all over the planet. Between eight and 900 missionaries in the Christian Missionary Alliance serve in that capacity with two or 300 others in a variety of other contexts. Kama, which is the relief arm of the CNMA, ministering there, ministering in Japan, ministering in a number of places. Incredible projects that they're doing there in Senegal and trying to replenish the land that is so desolate, so bare, so dry and barren and sandy. The only difference between there and here is they have a lot of sunshine, which I found out when we got back, we don't. But they just are incredibly desolate. And a lot of people in those contexts are ministering. And so you're giving to Kama or the Great Commission Fund is supporting what God is doing around the globe. A lot of the times we don't want to talk about that particular subject for a number of reasons. One is, to be honest with you, there's a lot of abuse in that area. Preachers make you feel guilty when you don't give or if you don't give enough. Television evangelists throughout the years have used manipulation to make us feel a little bit uncomfortable about what we do or how we invest. You know as well as I do, you've seen a half-hour program where they'll spend 20 minutes preaching and then another 10 minutes talking to you about investing into their ministry. And they always seem to have some special offer. You know offer number 14? Where if you send your money into them, they'll give you the CD on how to get the power of God in your life. When, of course, you give your money, and then you not only get the CD, but that glow-in-the-dark Bible bookmark with praying hands. <laughs> Always something that goes along with that. Now, sometimes they'll ask you to plant seeds of faith in their organization, and when you give money to that, God will give you back tenfold. And you know and I don't they'll know that's better than the bank and better than the stock market. And so they'll, they'll make you feel like that's what you're to do, and that's how you're to respond. Sometimes they'll get to the point of making you feel guilty if you don't give to their cause making you feel like you're not a Christian or you don't have a heart or you don't care about lost and hurting people. I get those emails every once in a while that say, if you're really not ashamed to be a Christian, then pass this along or pass this along if you love Jesus. I just need you to know my love for Jesus isn't dependent on whether or not I pass along an email. My Christianity isn't dependent upon how many Christian emails I send. A lot of abuses in this area and it makes us somewhat uncomfortable when we start discussing this subject because it makes us skeptical because we've seen so many abuses within the context of money. Another reason, to be honest with you, we don't like pastors dealing with money because we don't always like to be told what to do with our resources. You just need to know Jesus talked about money and possessions more than almost any other subject in the entire New Testament. 500 verses on prayer... 500 verses on faith, and over 2,200 verses on money, possessions, and resources. I assume he feels that's an important subject. Paul spent two whole chapters talking about that issue in the book of Corinthians. It's an enormously complex issue. We live in a context that is very uncertain, an economy that is extremely unpredictable. Money is tight, the market is down, some of us are so deep in debt we don't know what to do and how to meet our obligations as they are, let alone hearing us talk about money in the context of church. Some feel, don't talk to me about giving. I'm doing the very best I can with what I have. And that may very well be, but you know and I know, on the other hand, a lot of people live way above their means, trying to get as much out of this life as they can. Some claim to be poor. You know and I know that's always relative. 
59% of the world's wealth is in the United States. Out of all the countries around the globe, 59% of the world's wealth is in the United States. You've heard this before, I'm sure, but if you have, a, if you have food in your refrigerator, clothes on your back, a roof over your head, and a place to sleep, you are richer than 75% of the world. Clothes on your back, food in your refrigerator, roof overhead, and a place to sleep, you're richer than 75% of the world. Not a one of us in here, I doubt this morning, it wouldn't qualify in that context. Again, if you have money in the bank, money in your wallet, and spare change in a dish or a bowl or a jar somewhere in your house, you are among the top 8% of the world's wealthy. Money in the bank, money in your wallet, and a dish somewhere in your house, you are among the top 8% of the world's wealthy. Now, that kind of puts everything in perspective. Economically, compared to most of the world, we're incredibly rich. Walter Hansen from Fuller Theological Seminary a number of years ago stated that the answer to the poverty of every third world country on the planet is in the hands of the North American church. The answer to poverty in every third world country in the world lies in the hands of the North American church. You know and I know that we're spiritually incredibly wealthy. Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 1 that somehow the eyes of our heart would be enlightened so that we could understand how wealthy we really are in Christ. He goes on to talk about the incomparable riches of his grace that he lavished on us in amazing grace and context. Philippians says that Jesus or God will supply all of our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. It frustrates me when... We, and myself included, because I probably do it as much as anybody, if sometimes not more, but it frustrates me when we poor mouth, when we're so unbelievably blessed. I'll talk about either what I can't afford, or it must be nice, or I wish I could do that. And I use statements like that, and then every once in a while the Holy Spirit will remind me, you're really blessed, pal, and you have a lot, and you've been able to do a lot and experience a lot. Once I understand all that Christ has done for me, then I've got, to, I've got to determine what's my response to that. Over and over again in New Testament, the first response is gratitude. Extreme gratitude. When Justin was, lead, Justin was leading us through the Psalms this morning, that's one of the things that, that obviously came to my mind when you, when you see yourself at the cross and you see yourself looking into the eyes of Jesus and what was interesting even before he said that, when he said actually to visualize Christ, that's the first image that came into my mind as to him on the cross. And what he has done for that. And, and one of the things that, that I constantly am, I feel when I visualize those things is incredible gratitude. And then in my head was that song that thou my God would die for me. Amazing love. How can it be that thou my God would die for me? Incredible gratitude. And then once I understand that I live life with open hands and I live life incredibly grateful for what I've received, then I need to determine what kind of attitude am I going to have? What kind of attitude am I going to have toward what I've been given? Is it, hey, thanks God, really appreciate that? Or God, what do you want me to do with what you've placed in my hands? My time, my talent, my treasures. What, what can I do to benefit those around me? What others can I benefit from the benefits that I've received. Now one of the things that when you understand this context that Paul is talking about and James is talking about in these first few verses is it will always translate into worship. When I really understand how blessed I am 
and what God has given me will always translate itself into worship. Worship is not just singing, it's giving, it's, it, it's listening, it's, it's my heart, my expression to God, it's how I serve him outside these doors, how I serve him in the context of the ministry of Community Alliance Church, how I serve in a soup kitchen, Meals on Wheels, Katie's Kitchen, wherever that may be, it, it will always translate into worship. Because I've been so blessed, God, I want to respond in some way. I want to be involved, I want to do something, I want to serve you in some way. Now, if I'm afraid that God's not going to give us what I, what I need, then I'm going to start grabbing for myself and holding on as tight as I can and hoarding all I can get, which is exactly who James is talking about in these first five verses of James chapter 5. When he talks about the rich and what they've done, he is not beating up rich people. Some people look at this context and don't know what to do because we are unbelievably wealthy and, and, and have a lot of resources and we feel like when we read a section of like, now here, listen here, you rich people, weep and wail because the misery is coming upon you. We don't know what to do with that. He's not beating up rich people. What he is talking about is people who spend their lives pulling it in, holding it in, hoarding it for themselves and not utilizing it for the glory of others and the benefit of other people and the glory of God. When it begins with a relationship with God, out of that relationship will then always come some form of a response. Scripture always seems to indicate that action is the outcome of my words. It is not what I say, it is what I do. Because your behavior will always be determined by what you say you believe. 1 John 3, love not with words, but in deeds. James, all the way through his book, said faith without a corresponding action isn't faith. Faith without a corresponding activity consistent with what you say you have faith in is nothing more than a good intention. King James Version of the New Testament, Jesus refers to money as mammon four times. Once in Matthew and three times in the book of Luke. Now what's interesting is the word money was utilized within the context of the King James Version. Money is found, the word itself, 123 other times. But in four instances, Jesus used the word mammon. In all four instances, when he's using that word, when he says you cannot serve God and mammon, he's referring to mammon as a rival God. Not coins and paper, but a rival God. And when he does, he says, I need to be honest with you, you can't serve two gods. The Lord God and this other God. You cannot serve God and materialism. Notice Jesus didn't say you should not do that. You must not do that. You won't try to do that. He just says, I just want to be honest, you can't do it. You cannot serve both God and materialism. He's not giving advice. He's saying it's impossible. When he said you can't serve two masters, serve means to be a slave to, and master means absolute ownership. Jesus is saying materialism cannot be the owner of your life, which makes you a slave to it, and have God as the absolute owner your life. Materialism is best defined as the theory that practical or physical well-being and worldly possessions constitute the highest value and greatest good in life. In other words, the one with most toys wins. That's what the world says. Jesus said, no, not mine. You see, my disciples have a different standard. They see life on a different plane. They're, they're not living their lives to see what they can get. They're living their lives to see what they can do, how they can be involved, what they can give, how they can make life better for those around them, for those across the world and around the world. They not only understand stewardship, which I've received everything from God. I'm accountable for that. 
But they understand responsibility and accountability. That I know I've been blessed, I know I've received, and I want to make sure that I do it well. They know that there's going to be coming a day, which is referred to in the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, where we will all stand before God, and He will ask us, what have you done with what I've given you? What have you done with that 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, 80 years that I've placed in your hands? What have you done with the resources that I've given you? What have you done with your talents? It's up to him to decide who gets what. That's in Matthew where he says, you know, to some I give one, to some I give two, to some I give three. I appreciate my one. I look at him and I appreciate his 12. It's not up to me to decide who gets what. But what have I done? What am I doing with what's been entrusted into my care? Biblical stewardship is when I acknowledge that everything I have, the very breath that I breathe, comes from God. And everything I have belongs to Him. And what He asks of me, I give. Again, the key is what He asks of me. It's not a matter of making you feel guilty or anybody manipulating you. What is it that the Spirit of God is asking me to do? And when I understand that, then I respond. And remember, it's not broken because you say it. I really care for the poor. I really love to use my gifts. I really want to make sure that I use my resources well. It's not a matter of saying it. It's a matter of doing it. I remember the story of Zacchaeus. Growing up in Sunday school, right? Who was Zacchaeus? A wee little man. You know, sat in a tree so he could see Jesus come by. And Jesus came by and said, Zacchaeus, today I'm going to be in your house. And he does, and it transformed his life. He was a tax collector that no one liked. And when Christ turned his world upside down, he said, I want to... I want to give back half of my possessions. Give back four to five times what I took from other people. That wasn't a tithe. That wasn't 10%. It had nothing to do with the amount. It had everything to do with the response. With the heart, with the attitude. And saying it didn't break the grip. I really believe the grip was broken in his life when he actually did respond. Mary, with that vial of oil, hours before or days before Jesus died on the cross, came in, and instead of taking the top off and pouring it out, she broke it so that you couldn't put it back together. They said what she had or what was in her hands was more valuable than a year's worth of income. And again, it wasn't the amount. It was always the attitude as to what she did and how she responded to this amazing grace that God had given her. And she had been forgiven a lot. And what I found through life is the more you're forgiven, the more you're able to give. The more you understand grace, and the better you understand grace, it makes you a better grace giver. The widow's might, more less than half of a cent or half of a penny. Jesus said she gave more than anyone else, and there are other people dropping in 20s and 50s and 100s. Jesus said, not the amount. You don't get it. It's not the amount as much as the attitude. Jesus is all the way through Scripture, asking us to line up with what's really important. So in Matthew 6, 21, he said, where your treasure is, your heart's going to follow. Where you put your treasure reveals what you value the most. What you invest in will always show or display what you really value. It reveals what your heart is lined to, not what you say, but what you really do. You and I can both do our own self-inventory. How do I spend my time? Walk through your checkbook. What do you spend your money on? What are you most passionate about? can tell about everyone what they're most passionate about by what they talk about the most. You and I can both say, well, the most important things in my, in my life is my family, my kids, and my mate. 
Okay, let's ask him. You ask him. If indeed I have said or I've verbalized how important you are, or if I've ever told anybody that the most important thing in my life is my, my mate or my wife, let's ask them. You ask them and see if they would believe that. It's not by what we say, but how we live it out. Love God with all my heart. I love God with every fiber of my being. What does that look like? How do you flesh that out? Just attending church? giving to the poor every once in a while, going ministering a week a year or a week every, every five years so that I can say I, I, I care, I minister to the poor, or is it how I live my life? What does it look like that God is number one in my life? How much time do we spend with him? I talk about that in a couple of weeks. I can't wait to get to the end of, in May of, of the fifth chapter when he talks to us about prayer. Uh, what kind of conversation do I have with God? Or you put your treasure, your heart, and he said it's going to follow if you never invested in the stock market, and tomorrow you decide to, I'm telling you, every week or every day from there on in, you're going to look at the paper to see what it's doing. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with the stock market at all. It's just simply where you invest in, you're going to follow. Your heart's going to follow it. So you've got to be very careful what you invest in because at some point it's going to consume you. And you're going to have to decide what is my response going to be once I understand that. Some of us may need to change our lifestyle. Some of us need to deal with the issue of enormous debt. And one of the implications of God owning it all is that all of my giving and my spending decisions become spiritual decisions. If I truly believe that God owns it all, and He does, then, then I live like these are His resources and my decisions on how I use them, my time, my talent, my treasure, reflect my belief and whether or not I really believe that. It's so easy, as he says in the last half of chapter 4, when you say you're going to do this, we're going to go to this and that city, we're going to do this and do that. And, and he said, I just want you to know that you don't even know about tomorrow. But it's so easy to get caught up in life and so involved in life that we forget that life is so short compared to eternity. That's why the first five verses or six verses of chapter 5 follow the end of chapter 14 or chapter 4 when he says look I just need you to know how fragile life is so don't take it for granted because it's going to happen faster than you know that you're going to stand before God and have to give an account that's who he's talking about in these first few verses of James chapter 5 when he said listen you rich people weep and wail because misery is coming upon you now he doesn't sound like a fun guy to be around I can't imagine going fishing with James Hey, James, you want to go fishing tomorrow? How do you know what tomorrow will bring? Tomorrow we will die. Weep and wail, for misery is coming upon you. Can't imagine having a regular conversation with this guy. He's not trying to, to be spiritual or holier than thou or to make us feel guilty. He is talking to people who are in a context that is extremely poor. Remember how this James began? They're spread all over the place. They don't have a thing. And what they see around them is incredible wealth of people who have exploited others like so many people in northern Africa and the Middle East. And they wonder what to do with that. And James says, let me just tell you how to balance up life. He's trying to wake us up or shake us up to make us realize that it's not all about ourselves. Who think we can go through life and get all they can and get all they can from life and use it for their own benefit and for their own glory, not caring what anybody else has to say. Okay, seriously, 
If I don't hear one more article or message on Charlie Sheen or L Lindsay Lohan, I'll be okay with life. Because every time I hear one, I want to hurl, which is the biblical Greek word for throw up, but maybe you didn't, maybe I already knew that. But the audacity, I heard one, I, don't, I never even watched the dumb show, but the audacity when I heard the man say, you know, CBS owes me something for all they put me through. I'm going, okay, seriously. You have got to be kidding. But that's what people who don't get it feel like. That life owes me something. Jesus said, mine get it. They understand. They've been given so much. I want to respond to that. If you read these six verses, when he talks about it, your wealth has rotted, moths and, and, and time has corrupted in these verses. Your gold and your silver are corroded. Corrosion will testify against you. If you read these six verses, they're very reminiscent of the Christmas carol. You notice that? When Scrooge goes through that whole, you know, that scene of all these people walking into his life saying, I just want you to know you had so many opportunities to do so much with what you've been given and you've ordered it for yourself. That's essentially what James is saying in this particular context. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Now the NIV, most of us use NIV, the NIV translation of, of Lord Almighty is not as accurate as it could be. It really is better translated Lord of hosts, which always refers judgment. See, Scripture is very clear all the way through Revelation 20, 1 Corinthians, 5, 2 or 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, that every single one of us will stand before God and give an account of how we've lived. And James seems to indicate that in these five verses. And so when he uses in the NIV the Lord Almighty, the better translation is Lord of hosts. Look, you're going to stand before the Lord of hosts and give an account. Don't you know that? And his intention here in this context is to make sure they understand that. James is not condemning rich people at all. If God has blessed you with intelligence and wealth and the ability to acquire money, God bless you. What he's talking to is people who live only for themselves and only benefit themselves by their resources. A couple weeks ago, I got the list of the world's top wealthiest individuals. Carlos Slim outranked Bill Gates in Mexico in, in, uh, in, in one of the uh, in, 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 uh, IT things, IT issues. And he has $70 billion. And that's just hard to fathom what that's like. And Bill Gates slipped down because Bill Gates gave $30 billion of his dollars away. Now, whatever you believe about him, I don't even know if he's a believer, but the reason it flipped when he used to be the wealthiest man is because he recognized, I, have so, I, mean, well, I don't know what you do with that much money anyhow. But he recognized the responsibility to say, even as a non-believer, I've got to do something with what I've been given and what I've received. The issue of what we do with what we've been given is one of the central issues of the gospel. Money and wealth is a fascinating thing. From the late 50s to the late 90s, it literally the, the per capita income in the United States doubled. Yet in both, only 33% of those surveyed said they were happy. We're twice as wealthy, but no happier. Wealth doesn't bring happiness. Wealth and generosity don't always go together. Some think it's what I deserve. Others see it as a, a sign of God's blessing, and many see it as an enormous responsibility. 
James is writing to people who are living out what we see almost every day in the news in northern Africa. Where the very rich have exploited the very, very poor. And have taken advantage of them. Leaders in Egypt and uh, Gaddafi, a Libyan leader, who have such unbelievable wealth and have such incredible poverty around them. That's why so many contexts in this verses here in chapter 5 and in chapter 2 when it said, Do you not know that you have dishonored the poor? It's not the rich. It is, not, it is the rich who are exploiting you. James is writing to that context here. What many saw in, in, in Dominican Republic, as Ted did a marvelous job last Sunday, I understand, of sharing with you what it was like and what it's like to be in that context. What we see and what we saw every time we go to Senegal, West Africa, with unbelievable poverty. Jesus walked into James's world, into his own world, with not physical, tangible wealth, but literally turned that world upside down. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your and my sake became incredibly poor, so that we, through his poverty, could become rich. We have a God who shared his wealth with us, who lavished it on us, who, who doesn't store it, doesn't hoard it, but he gives it away. That's why when he looks at people that James is writing to in chapter 5, he said, you cannot possibly understand the heart and character of God and the heart and character of the gospel if you don't want to use your resources to make a difference in the lives of people. You cannot possibly understand the heart and character of God and you cannot possibly understand the heart of the gospel if you don't want to do or use what you've been given, your time, your talents, and treasure to make a difference in the lives of people. James is not beating up rich people. He's simply reminding people that one of the central tenets of the gospel is that we are so blessed so we can bless. The point of the last half of four to the beginning of five, life's short. Use it well. <coughs> Invest in the right things. Not in an effort to make us feel guilty, just a reminder to make us feel grateful and incredibly generous. To go home feeling blessed and grateful and out of that gratitude begin to wonder, Lord, I am really blessed. What do you want me to do with what's been given to me so that I don't spend my life's juices investing in the wrong things? You see, the God of the universe started all this all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Jesus exemplified it on the cross so that you and I could imitate it. And when we do, we're imitating God. You see, life's not about making a living. It's about making a difference. And when I understand that God owns every fiber of my being and the very breath that I get today and throughout this day and tomorrow when I wake up is a gift from God. And so I want to say, God, what do you want me to do with what I've been given? And you will find in that not a tenfold blessing or any of the things that sometimes are promised in many contexts, you will just find it is a great way to live life. To realize that this is a gift from God my talents and my abilities and, and my passions and my enthusiasm for life, whatever that may be, and the resources that God has given me is a great blessing that I want to steward well so that when I stand before him, he'll be able to say, well done, great job. Let's pray. God, it is such a blessing to be a part of the family of God. And when I realize the family is so large, as, as many of us do, in so many contexts, we look around and, and every once in a while we have the opportunity to travel around like uh, many of our family here did in the Dominican Republic and, and we get a chance to do in Senegal and, and many youth will get a chance to do this summer. 
God, I'm, I'm just so pleased that we serve a God who is so generous, who gives so much, and who's lavished it upon us. And so every day of our lives, help us to be aware of that and to recognize that we who've been blessed have the opportunity to bless. And so, Father, help us to be very uh, aware of our time and our gifts and our talents and our resources and to use them really well. To use them for your glory and to make sure that, that we have sought your face as to what we do with what we've been given so that we can invest in the right things and not waste it on the wrong. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Beautiful Lord, wonderful Savior, I know for sure all of my days are held in your hands, crafted into your perfect plan You gently call me Into your presence Guiding me by Your Holy Spirit Teach me, dear Lord To live all of my life Through your eyes I'm captured by your holy calling Set me apart I know you're drawing me to yourself Lead me, Lord, I pray
inside me I give my life to the potter's hand and remember not because we say it or because we sing it because we do it and that's what makes the difference set me apart is the word sanctification and tonight at 6 Ted's going to do a great job helping us to understand what that really looks like on a practical level membership class tonight family experience in our kids room from kindergarten to fourth grade go get your kids going to have a great time finding out what this month is all about God bless you have a great great day take me mold me use me fill me I give my life to the potter's hand call me guide me lead me walk beside me I give my life to the potter's hand. Take me, mold me, use me, fill me. I give my life to the potter's hand. Call me, God. Beside me, I give my life to the potter's hand, to the potter's hand, to the potter's hand, to the potter's hand. Potter's head.